Good evening. This is Lehigh Valley Discourse, and you are listening to the Elchar Chronicles. I'm your host, Karen Elchar. This program chronicles issues of law and order and our local justice system, the environment, and indigenous issues with special guests that dig deep into topics less talked about here in the Lehigh Valley. This evening's topic deals with unexplained phenomenon, what the majority of us consider as UFOs, or, in today's vernacular, unidentified aerial phenomena. It's purported that sightings of unidentified phenomena occurred in ancient writings through the Renaissance area and today. There are numerous reports of UFO incidents by military and commercial pilots, police, and average citizens both in the U.S. and internationally. Can they be explained by weather or other natural phenomena, or are they true sightings of things extraterrestrial? What was it that former U.S. President Jimmy Carter saw while at Leary, Georgia, in 1969? In 2014, multiple UFO radar visual encounters by U.S. Navy pilots occurred off the U.S. East Coast. Videos of two of the encounters were released. The Navy has verified that the videos were taken by Navy personnel and has stated that it has not yet identified the nature of the sightings they classify as unexplained aerial phenomena. And what does the public know about Area 51? I'm very pleased to welcome my guest, Mr. Francis Ridge, whose biography covers extensive research, investigation, and reports of UFO sightings. Welcome. Uh, Thank you very much for having me on. So a little bit about you. So Francis Ridge was 52 years old and a 30-year veteran of UFO investigation when you wrote your first book in 1994. UFO sightings had waned, and you apparently were ready to retire, but the computer age and instant communication with emails and the Internet changed all that. Your UFO career exploded into 30 more years of activity, which you never dreamed of. You created the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon website and the Nuclear Connection Project and the Lunascan Project, all before the new century had started. But the work had really just started. You set up a 30-man A-team, which we'll talk a little more about, and you documented thousands of the best UFO reports, over 500 radar cases, plus hundreds of sightings from aircraft. You updated the old NICAP sighting chronologies and created new ones from 1964 on up to the present, including all of the Project Blue Book unknowns from 1947 to 1969. You documented the key nuclear connection cases, in particular the missile shutdowns. In the process of all of this, the key to the visitations became clear and the direct link between sightings and the threat of a devastating nuclear catastrophe began before Roswell, during the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and even showed up during the Arab-Israeli conflicts, which had the potential of drawing in the superpowers. So, Fran, what got you into all of this? Very exciting. Well, I was I got interested by reading a book in the eighth grade called The Report on UFOs by uh, Edward Ruppelt. But it was really uncanny about some of the things that happened that really dragged me into it. In the uh, junior year of high school, I made a model of the solar system for a science project. And it was really great, but I didn't win any prizes. So the following year, I built a Geiger counter. And I was having trouble getting a tube for it, a Geiger tube. 
And a scientist was giving talks at the university for students to try to tell them which way they're going to go when they get into high school. It was a sort of a seminar, and he was one of the guest speakers. And I remembered him, and I contacted him about that Geiger tube, and he helped me find one. But he ended up being the very person that told me to build a UFO detector, and that really dragged me into it. He had actually been part of Project Sign. He was one of the scientists that worked for the, one of the original Air Force projects, the first one. Uh, it was called uh, Project Saucer at first, and then when the code name was exposed, we found out it was Project Sign. That was the what really got me going with the MADAR, and uh, of course I'm still doing it. And so you've started, my goodness, way back, so really for quite a long time, and you've enjoyed every minute of it? Oh, yeah. I I consider myself blessed. I really do. When I was a kid, I used to dream about, wouldn't it be great if we had radar? And, of course, we couldn't have afforded it in those days. And then it turns out in the 80s, uh, the computer age broke loose, and we had printers and copiers and scanners and Internet and email we actually had a, probably a better system in the 80s than the FBI did back then. <laughs> uh, and today it's even greater because we have the made our operations center here and working with 160 people all over the world with made our devices. And I, I never began to dream of, uh, of anything like that. It never entered my mind. I always figured I would have a detector uh, and it would get better and better, but I never dreamed it would be a worldwide network. And that it grew so exponentially, absolutely. So throughout your tenure, I'm going to take you back a little bit. Throughout your tenure in the field, you held various positions. I alluded to some of them in the beginning. And you had a seven-man investigation team in Indiana for the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon. What was the impetus behind the creation of the team? You explained how you had gotten interested. So how did you go about with this team? Back then, there was a group... Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, and it was uh, it existed in the early 50s, and that was a little too early for me. But NICAP got going when uh, Major Kehoe took over the organization because they were having trouble raising funds and uh, getting members, and they were setting up subcommittees. They had about 15 different subcommittees at the time. I heard about them in the late or early 60s. And we uh, we applied. I had a number of members, three or four at least, that were very interested. And we applied to become a subcommittee, and we had to have some advisors. We got everybody together and made the application, and within uh, six months we were approved in November of 60. So uh, that was the, the beginning of an official affiliation with a, a major organization. And we lucked out. We ran into some... Pretty good incidents to investigate, but we, you know, we're in southern Indiana. There was nothing in southern Illinois, so when they had the sightings in 63, we were there, and we had to travel more. It was just the beginning. Later in the 70s, NICAP went out of business. Sightings had died down somewhat. Membership had died down, and MUFON got started, and that's when I got involved with with MUFON, which lasted up until a point, as you suggested, uh, <laughs> I was thinking of retirement. Mm-hmm. I figured I'd done all that I could do. I'd written my book and kind of wanted to retire. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I'm glad I didn't. 
No, because you've been discovering a lot more things since then. Oh, man. Yeah, I know. It's, it's phenomenal, everything that I've read in your books, plus all these reports that you've been yeah, issuing over the years. So we'll go through some of those items as well. You've been mentioning MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. What were you doing with them? Well, they started out as the Midwest UFO Network and then started growing very well and became the Mutual UFO Network. And instead of subcommittees, they were uh, getting people to fill the spaces in the states. In other words, we had 92 counties in Indiana, and I was a state section director for three counties, and I would have investigators. We would handle things that are going on in that particular area, we did the PR work with the radio and TV stations and working with the police, sheriff, state police, airports. But then they invited me to become a state director, and uh, I did that for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I, I read that you conducted geographical studies of a nine-state area under the Geographical Distribution Research Project. So what did that entail? Actually, when I began the NICAP group, I was tabulating cases for the area. I always had in my mind that UFOs went from one place to another. And that that wasn't true, but I'm still glad I thought that. Because I would record, I would have a, I started a database uh, of sightings in Indiana, then Southern Illinois. Then next thing I thought of doing was adding Missouri, Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee. So by the end of so many years, I had a quite a collection, and that was the database. I had over 4,000 sightings in that database, and that was what really uh, helped me write my first book. All I really had to do was connect the dots, you know, connect the the little stories. And, uh, of course, what really got it going was the computer age again, uh, having an actual database, not just on a computer, but on the Internet where people can access it. By being the person that set up the uh, NICAP site, I had about 30, 35 of my heroes to help me do it, and uh, I couldn't have done it. I wanted to make sure I mentioned that. couldn't have done it without their help. People that you would know, uh, like Richard Hall and Peter Davenport, who I just talked to yesterday, the one that sits practically at his desk 24-7, taking calls from all over the world on UFOs. He's been doing that for at least 20 years. Well, they all helped you completely to identify, investigate, and determine what may have been a true sighting versus an other aerial phenomenon. So you developed the MADAR project as well. You alluded to that a little bit earlier on. So tell us about the project. Well, the uh, gentleman, the scientist that got me interested in building it, he suggested I take a, a large compass needle and put little door-like dividers on, the, on each end, and then when the compass was aligned to north, it would be cutting off the light from a light beam. And the first thing about that was being a big compass needle, it was hard to get it to move and overcome inertia. So I developed a way of uh, using a smaller needle and using a vertical light beam. But that was up until the time I thought of retiring, and then in, uh, I'd say around 2016, I decided to try a new idea, and we went to an electronic version, and that's when things really went crazy. Uh, We developed a very small, almost the size of a C4 
cell phone device that could do so much and tied to a server. And uh, it has several sensors on board it. It has a magnetometer, an onboard compass. Uh, at the time it measured uh, atmospheric pressure, we decided we didn't need that as much as we needed a uh, accelerometer. So we improved on it, and it took off. It uh, it took a you know a couple years to really get going, but by the time we uh, hit around 2018, we were really operational from May of eight, 2018 on, and uh, it's been it's been phenomenal. Well, we're going to take a a short break, and then we'll come back and we'll continue our discussion on the MADAR device itself. You're listening to the LCHAR Chronicles. So for our listening audience, do stay tuned. We'll be right back. Thank you to the members of WDIY for making all the programming you hear possible. Becoming a WDIY member is the best way to support your listening and to ensure WDIY will be here for the next person in our community to discover. Make your membership gift today at 610-694-8100, extension 4, or wdiy.org. We couldn't be here without you. Celtic Fair, celebration of Celtic music and culture, from its roots in Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Brittany, and Galicia, to its branches in Australia, Cape Breton, Canada, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, and the Lehigh Valley. Music, interviews, and a weekly culture calendar every Thursday from 7 to 9 here on WDIY. And welcome back to the LCHAR Chronicles. My guest is Mr. Francis Ridge, well-known author as well as person very active in our particular topic this evening of unexplained phenomenon what we might consider as UFOs, but more aptly, it's unidentified aerial phenomenon. So, Fran, we were talking a little bit earlier about the the MADAR, your device. So how does it actually function? What does it tell you, and when? Well, when I first got the tech support people together to help me build it, the very first thing each one of them said to a man was, how do we know if this thing works? <laughs> and I told them that NICAP had like 106 electromagnetic cases. Other researchers had found uh, a lot of incidents involving electromagnetic energy, magnetic effects. But the important thing was one gentleman had collected compass needle cases where compasses would be seen to go crazy and UFOs were being observed. So we had 150 of those. So I was confident that not only at that point when the tech support was uh, working on it, but the very first part of the MADAR project was from 1970 to 1992, and we had already had some good compass cases, just with regular compasses. So uh, they uh, helped me design the device. And, uh, of course, they knew a lot more about getting the information on a server and converting the data around, and and uh, it, uh, it, it took off. Now, it took two years before we really knew what a signature looked like. Like I said, they were saying, well, how will we know if it works? April of 2020, one of our devices in Pennsylvania or Connecticut picked up a disturbance and the gentlemen that were on duty went outside to see what was going on and they observed a UFO and the uh, cattle were going crazy, the dogs were barking, the typical close encounter too. 
event lasted about 10 minutes. So we actually had, for the first time, we looked at the data, and it really wasn't much different than some of the other events we had where nobody had reported anything. So we're looking at the data, and it indicated something disturbed the local area for about four or five seconds. But yet the sighting lasted 10 minutes. So even though we had what we call a uh, code blue, when the device comes on, there's a blue light that actually uh, most lights up the room and turns on a siren. But uh, we we, we had something going on that just didn't make any sense. There was no doubt that it, we had picked up a UFO that actually split in two and was maneuvering around some barn silos. We uh, had a sort of a mystery there. So a few months later, we had a, an informant tell us that in Korea in 2003, they had picked up a major disturbance with their equipment. And when they went outside and looked up, an object had come down straight down through the atmosphere and broke through the clouds, and then when it settled down, all their gauges settled down. So what it told us was uh, the objects come in with a lot of power and electromagnetic energy, and then when they idle down, they can just about do what they want, spend about as much time as they want doing what they want, and possibly when they leave, they might create the same type of disturbance, but we've not had a case like that yet. But we're assuming that when they come in, they create a disturbance. So so where are the MADAR devices located? Who monitors them? A lot of the people that are involved uh, are actually MUFON people, which is not surprising, though, because we talk about the project in MUFON UFO Journal quite a bit. But uh, anybody that really would like to invest in the project and put a device in, we have no qualms about doing that. They, they merely pay for the device and have to go by, uh, you know, the maintenance rules, you know, keep them online, keep them uh, working properly. And uh, we have about 160 located all over the world, about actually t- 10 foreign countries there's a couple in Switzerland, and maybe there's two somewhere else in, in the foreign group, but the, the rest of them are in the United States. I, I couldn't tell you which uh, states we don't have them in, but we, if you look at the MADAR map, which is at MADAR.site, you can see we've got quite a few all over the country. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like you would accept volunteers as long as they pay for the device, as you were saying, take care of it and, and monitor. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. And if we find a spot or spots where we need to place one, we try to take a little of the leftover funds and find someone to operate them. We, for instance, we've got one that we uh, had funded go in as close as we could get to the Malmstrom Air Force Base missile sites. We've got uh, one in Connecticut, not too far from that secret sub base there. We try to get them as close as possible to the technically interesting areas. We've uh, we've even got one close to Skinwalker Ranch hmm. in Utah. So you conduct investigations of purported UFO sightings, and you issue reports, which is how I discovered your work. And what piqued my interest was a report of a 2022 investigation of a sighting in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania. So can you take us through an investigation? What information do you need, and then how you go about investigating? We have a uh, gentleman that we refer to as a, our MADAR UFO officer, uh, Jeremy Haslam, 
who goes through the National UFO Reporting Center database every month. And boy, I'm telling you, there's quite a few sightings there. And what he does, he finds sightings that are usually of a craft-like nature or something that would be important to sightings would be important to a scientist, not just orbs and lights in the sky type things. And he creates this list of about 30 cases each month. And what I do is I take that case, I look up the latitude and longitude and punch that into our MADAR map. And if it falls within 20 to 50 miles of one of our MADAR sites, which could be in another state, by the way, it doesn't have to be the same state, whatever the sighting is closest to, then we look at the data. We take the time of the incident and convert that to universal time and go into our spreadsheets, which is chronicled in universal time. And we look to see if the uh, magnetometer had a spike or if the compass needle moved uh, over three degrees. And in that case, we uh, check with New Fork, which is the National UFO Reporting Center, and try to get contact information, see if the witness was, will allow us to investigate, and we dig deeper. And then we find some MUFON cases uh, as well, and of course they're already investigated when we find them. So if we find a good case, we try to see if the MADAR was affected. And we've probably got about 60 cases so far. Most of those were last year, which I find is really interesting because it seemed like it happened right after the uh, invasion of uh, Ukraine. No telling what 2023 is going to do. Or we're, we're always prepared for something new. So if someone has a purported sighting, who do they contact? What protocol should they follow? Like they, uh, if they go online on the Internet, there are several places they could report. They could report to New Fork. There's an online form uh, as well on the uh, MUFON site. NARCAP has one, which is basically for airline pilots and pilots. There's a number of places they could report those. And then, of course, the, once they're in a database, investigators are assigned to uh, check out the case and see if there's anything to it. But we do explain most cases, and that doesn't bother us. It's the uh, 5 or 10% that we can't explain that we go after. So how is this program funded? The MADAR project is just funded by people purchasing equipment and um, I hate to report it, but in the last year or two, the price of parts has gone up, so we just barely break even on them. But we were able to do that, and, of course, we get donations from people. So if someone was interested in making a donation, where would that donation, how would they get in touch with you or whatever? Uh, on the website, there are places. Uh, there's on the NICAP site and the MADAR site both. There's uh, a place where they can go to donate or purchase someone, not totally deviate, but you've written numerous papers and I believe three books. And the first book is one that I have read. And it, as you listed or stated earlier, it goes through various cases. You also established this UFO public information website. That's the NICAP.org. And right. do you anticipate anything else coming on the horizon? Another book, well, another it's website. Probably like, it, it's probably like asking me before I thought I was going to retire. You just never know. Uh, I don't know how we could tackle any more than we are. But we've got enough people that if something needs to be done, we'll find somebody that can uh, jump in there and 
Mm-hmm. You know, as I was reading some of your cases, your investigations. Actually, I was looking at the report you issued in January of 2023, based on uh, sightings in or your investigations in 2022. Yes, uh, there had been one that you investigated in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania. And it also stated that Pennsylvania, I guess at that time, ranked fifth in UFO sightings. How do you rank the states? And who would you say is number one? Yeah, I think you hit it on the head. Uh, I have a database where we, it's, it's a case status report database. And if you shuffle it by state, and you can just merely count the number of uh, events compared to the total of about 60, and you can see who the leading states are. But that would include, like, Missouri, Ohio. What surprises me is some of the bigger states with a lot of MADARs, like New York and California, were just, for some reason, we're not getting much uh, activity being reported. But I think we can re- I think we'll remedy that somehow. <laughs> So the bottom line, do you believe you've achieved your initial goal, perhaps, of making the public and even governments aware of UFOs and the possibility of their existence? Uh, are you asking me if we might have uh, affected the what's, what's going on with the government now? Is that what you were asking me? Um, in essence. So if you started this activity on UFO investigations, etc., you firmly believe that they do exist. Oh, no as a res- yes, so then what you're doing to a degree confirms, and I presume you're trying to ensure that the public or at least the governments believe these are true happenings. The um, uh, the, the overall effect of what we've produced, I think, has had a great effect on people's attitude and how they feel compared to years and years ago. I mean, people used to get excited about lights in the sky, meteors, balloons. They'd they'd get excited about it. But now it it takes something a little more credible and a little more uh, compelling. I couldn't really tell you how much effect we would have had on the government, though, because they appear to be doing the same thing now that they did 50 years ago, 70 years ago. It looks like a new thing. But it's exactly the same as it was. So it's uncanny because uh, they were saying the same things. Uh, there were people balking at the events. But uh, it's kind of hard with the media today. It's kind of hard to uh, get away with that because we're all seeing the kind of stuff that the pilots were seeing and telling their commanding officers. And we would just read something in the newspaper about it, and it didn't seem as interesting as the stuff we're seeing today, which we actually see the videos. Mm-hmm. So is there anything else you'd like to tell our audience? <laughs> I, I don't really know what I would uh, suggest at this point. Uh, there, there are uh, books to read. There's television shows to watch that they could get more indoctrinated. But I think the best place to go is an ICAP site, and there's, there's enough there to keep you engrossed for many, many years. Uh, as you can tell, it's uh, it's jam-packed with all types of sightings, and uh, and the documents are there. It, it, we're not just saying something happened. We actually have the documents to back it up. And for our listeners to find that information, you can go to www.nicap.com. 
org. Well, my guest has been Mr. Francis Ridge, an individual who conducts extensive research and investigation of UFO sightings. He's written a number of books. He has numerous papers, very interesting reading. So thank you for an extremely informative discussion and best wishes on your continued journey. I look forward to future reports. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I'm Karen Elchar, and this is WDIY 88.1 FM. Tune in next Thursday for more Lehigh Valley Discourse, and we'll see you next time on the Elchar Chronicles. (laughs) 